thank you guys for coming. This is July 4th week, Tuesday night. This is where big things happen, right here. Um, well, there you are, Wes. I was wondering if you were camping out back there with your, you had plenty of pews. But um, thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, go ahead, let's go ahead and open up to Hebrews 6. And also, uh, hello to anyone who may be watching this online. Uh, thank you, Ian, for all your work getting that to, uh, to be up and working. Now, uh, just kind of a couple words of introduction here before we pray and uh, read through this passage. Uh, the author of Hebrews has got some warnings to give to us, and, and this is one of the more challenging passages in Hebrews, maybe in the New Testament in general. Um, we'll, we'll get into this more, but uh, some people in the history of the church have argued that this is clearly teaching that you can lose your salvation. Um, and then other people have said, no, that's not what's happening. It's, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than that. And uh, so we're, we're going to be looking at a difficult text. Let's just start with the first half of the chapter. Our plan is to cover the whole chapter. But uh, Fred, would you read, uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, through six twelve? Thank you, Mark. Uh, the word of the Lord, uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. Uh, about this... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom, whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, and the love that you'd shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Papa, would you pray for us? Sure. Father God, um, as, as Mark mentioned earlier, these are, this chapter 6 is considered one of the 
uh, toughest warning verses, certainly in Hebrews and, and maybe in the Bible. And, and so, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we ask for your presence. We ask for your uh, instruction. We ask for your interpretation so that we might rightly exposit your word. Um, there's so much hope in this passage. Uh, in spite of the warning uh, uh, passages, there's so much hope, there's so much encouragement, there's so much uh, to look forward to in our uh, quest to know you, to, um, to love you, to worship you, to uh, honor you, and uh, so help us tonight, Holy Spirit, and uh, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's just sort of ease our way into the passage here. Let's remind ourselves of where we ended last week. So you remember it toward the end of chapter 5, the author brings up what Fred calls the big M. Who's the big M? Everyone's favorite, yes, Melchizedek. Everyone's favorite king priest other than Jesus. And uh, Melchizedek shows up and the author catches himself because he knows if I just dive into this Melchizedek subject, some of the people at, in, in the Hebrew church, the, the Jewish Christians, are going to get lost from the get-go. And he sees that as really something to be chastised about the people because by this point, they should have been believers long enough to be able to grasp the meaty elements of Scripture, not just the milk of God's Word. So just look again at verse 11. In fact, let's go back to verse 9, just in chapter 5. And being made perfect, he became the source, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the author stops. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Uh, I read somebody say that there's almost a mixing here with, with the metaphor. You have the child who's... Literally, they, they can't digest meat, right, a young child. But they also can't think very critically or deeply. The discernment of a young child is, is almost nothing. Uh, obviously, children left to themselves for five seconds begin to injure themselves in horrible ways. Kelly and I leave the room. It's like ten seconds have gone by, and then there's a crash, and then there's horrific screaming. And we go back in like, how, how did you climb up and fall off? We were gone for ten seconds. So children not only need... Food they can digest at a young age. They also need a lot of help with intellectual issues. The parent needs to do the thinking for the child, and the child is, is trained. And so an, a young believer, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with being a young believer. That's what we all start out as. The problem is what? It's when we stay a young, immature believer, even when we've been around for years and decades. And the author is expecting them to be able to teach each other, to encourage each other. He's not talking about everybody in the church being a pastor. He's talking about them informally encouraging and instructing each other in the faith. And they're not able to do that because they're still on a milk diet and they still have very underdeveloped discernment about moral issues like, like a child. And so he, he gives them a warning and it's not because he's being mean. He is saying if you guys continue in immaturity indefinitely, 
you could wind up moving backwards in the faith. And the backwards could move you all the way slowly towards rejection of Christ and full-blown apostasy. So this, this press-on-to-maturity talk is not just a pep talk because it sounds fun. This press-on-to-maturity talk has eternal life and eternal destruction at stake in the, in the issue of what, he's, of what he's talking about as he begins moving in to chapter 6. And how about just one last word here on verse 14 of chapter 5. Greg, could you take a shot at this? I know no one's prepared you for this, but uh, when it says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Any just sort of basics about what that would be referring to? I think as best I can do off the cuff, um, (laughs) because I really didn't look at that one much. Um, I think it's referring to the fact that over time, as we study Scripture, as we meditate on Scripture, as we share the Bible with others, and we hear the Bible taught, um, we gain an ability to tell good from bad, right from wrong, and all of that. Um, and it's, it's one of those processes you think of a, of a child learning to eat solid food. Um, at first, it's difficult. Um, and you hope your child doesn't choke and die, even though they, they don't. For thousands of years, children have been doing this, and they've, you know, they've been fine. But it, it's one of those things. The only way you get to eat meat is by training yourself to eat solid food as opposed to milk and the baby food. Um, and so I think that that is what, what he's talking about. And this is a maturity that only comes over time. Like, it, it's one of those things, you know, the, the Christian church kind of broadly speaking tends to to get somebody who's a new believer especially if they're famous and they automatically like place them in a position of leadership you know celebrity status and all of that expecting them well they're a christian therefore you know whatever they say is is mature and it's like no don't put that pressure on people give folks a chance to be taught to grow to get a solid grasp um, of what Scripture says and how it applies to all of life. And the only way that's going to happen is over time. Just, there's no um, a miracle grow uh, for the Christian life. Yeah, that's good. So let's, let's move here into chapter 6, and let's just spend a few minutes on the first two verses. Okay, so here, here we go. We'll read it again. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of, and then he has three pairs of things. First pair, repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Second pair, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands. Third pair, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now there's debate here, and I don't even know if the three of us are going to be on exactly the same page on this, which is is fine. It's not... I don't even really know, honestly. We'll find out. But, like, there's a debate here about whether he's talking about, is there an element of sort of an overlap of Judaism here coming into Christianity? And I am, I'm not going to die on this hill, but I am thinking there is, um, because uh, he, he's talking about things here that any uh, Pharisee who's not yet a believer would basically believe, right? So would they believe in a Christ? Yeah, right? They believed in a Messiah. Messiah. Not Jesus, but they believed a Messiah was coming at Christ. Did they believe in repentance from dead works and faith towards God? Yeah. Did they believe in washings? Now, that word could be translated baptisms, plural, baptizois or something the word is. It's this weird word. 
every, the, the only other two times that word, baptisms, plural, is used in the Bible is once in Hebrews 9 and once in Mark, both times referring to Jewish ceremonial washings. Interesting. So I think he's got a Jewish kind of idea in his mind for washings, the laying on of hands, which a Jew would have practiced, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Did the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead at the end of time? Yes, clearly. And did they believe in a final judgment? Yes. And so he's saying, listen, don't feel like you're safe in this sort of mostly Jewish conception. Let's, let's move into maturity. Let's move on from these very ABC things into a robust Christ-centered faith. And don't just stay back with these Old Testament foreshadowings. Let's look to where these are going and move into them. Now, I may not be saying this just right, so I'm, I'm, I would welcome pushback at this point, honestly. Well, I don't have pushback. Um, just, uh, you know, helping unfold it a little more, I think. And we, had, we talked about this, Mark, um, earlier. Um, and I think what it's getting at is somebody here who can't get past the distinctions between Judaism and Christianity. They're constantly wrestling with, well, can, can we talk about the washings again? Can we talk about this thing again? Like, like you, they, they have not gotten solid ground under their feet. They're constantly, um, to use uh, James's language, double-minded um, on this. Like, is, you know, they, they, they're wrestling with, well, Judaism is this, Christianity is this. And, I mean, we've known people like that who on some issues, like, they, they just can never seem to make progress. Um, whatever the issue is. And I think that's what he's getting at here is, you know, when he says the elementary doctrine of Christ, that's not, um, he's not saying leave gospel-centeredness behind uh, because, again, the context is Judaism versus Christianity. He's like, you, you, this, the, the basic distinctions between Christianity and Judaism, you, you've got to be able to, to get a handle on that and accept that and move on um, because you, you will never progress in, the fa- in, in your faith if you are constantly stuck on the difference between Christianity and Judaism, or we could, you know, broaden that out and say wherever you came from before you became a Christian. If, if, if you can never get past where you were and, and where Christianity will take you, that's not a good place to be. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. Well, you see some examples of this, uh, and I agree with, with both of you, but uh, see some examples of this in the gospel. For example, John the Baptist shows up, and he's baptizing, but he's baptizing, who's he baptizing? He's baptizing Jews, and they're coming to him for a baptism of repentance, which was not a Jewish practice. They baptized, or they immersed proselytes, but there was no, the, the repentance part was taken care of at the temple with the sacrificial system. So, uh, but if you, in Israel, all the sites have, washing stations where you actually go down the steps and you immerse yourself and come back up the other side. They actually have sort of like our baptism thing, but you're both sides. So that was a ritual to them. And, and of course, Jesus called the Pharisees out uh, because of their superficial way of applying the law, for example, on the Sabbath. They, 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 They wouldn't do work on the Sabbath, but they wouldn't allow him to heal on the Sabbath or to rescue an animal on the Sabbath, which was allowed, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, there, there is some overlap here. And, there, and a ritualistic background is very difficult to break away from. I would say very similar to perhaps even a Roman Catholic background that, that came to Christ and, and was in a Protestant church. They might have a tendency to want to 
perhaps go back to the mass or something. No, that's helpful. So <clears throat> he's here pushing for maturity. Let's move on. Let's press on. Um, and now we're going to get into to a more challenging part. So verse 3, I don't want to skip verse 3. So the author says, and this we will do. So we will press on to maturity. This we will do if God permits, which is just an astonishing verse. So we as a church will press on to spiritual maturity if God lets us, you know, if God permits that, if God chooses to let that happen. And so, Greg, any thoughts about if God permits, which is kind of a surprising statement? Yeah, it, it's one of those places where we just run full bore into the sovereignty of God. Um, God is absolutely sovereign um, over our, our, our salvation, over our growth in Christ. This is one of the most humbling verses we can consider um, because we, we tend to think it's all up to us, and here we're seeing it's ultimately up to God. Now, what this does, because we, we chatted about this as well, we cannot... In, in our, our thinking through issues like, okay, we know, because the whole emphasis of Hebrews is press on to maturity. You are responsible to press on to maturity. And yet here he's saying you're not going to do that unless God permits you to. And so we, we cannot um, go places with doctrines that Scripture itself doesn't go. Because uh, some people will say, well, if God is that sovereign, then we're not responsible anymore. And Scripture doesn't even have a category for that. It affirms that God is 100 billion percent sovereign, and yet we are still fully responsible for what we do. Same issue comes up when it comes to, you know, sharing the gospel and evangelism. Uh, some people say, well, if God's sovereign and he chooses, you don't have to, you know, you know, one. Some people will say, well, you don't have to evangelize. Others will say, well, you got to figure out who he's chosen. And that, again, that's not even how Scripture deals with the issue. Scripture affirms the sovereignty of God and then stresses our responsibility to respond. We rest ultimately in God's sovereignty, but we never think of God's sovereignty in any kind of way that minimizes our response and, and our responsibility and, and our taking action to do what God has told us to do. So, yes, ultimately, this is be, if God permits, um, this will happen. But don't forget the whole emphasis of the book is you need to press on, stay steadfast, and all these exhortations to, to the believers to, to press on. So don't, don't, don't get confused on that. Scripture affirms both. And sometimes, I heard John MacArthur say this, Scripture will, will, will talk in the same place about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And it doesn't seek to reconcile them. It just affirms that God's sovereign and you're responsible. And if that's what it's saying, let's, you know, sometimes let's not go beyond where the Scriptures are going. You know, let, let the emphasis be what it is. I think there's also an urgency we read a couple of chapters ago, today while it is today. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the Hebrews is talking, uh, don't harden your heart while it's today. And I think today is mentioned like three or four times there in a row. And so there is a, we can't presume on tomorrow. We don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. And, and if, if I need Christ today, I best take care of that issue right now while it is today so we yeah that, that's exactly right so we don't think of it as you know like a pie chart you got like the blue pie chart and, and imagine you, you know it's not like god's sovereignty is the red part of the pie chart which is maybe 50 percent 45 percent 70 percent and then human responsibility is the other part the blue part no no, no it's 100 percent blue and it's 100 percent red 
so we, we are fully responsible, and God is entirely sovereign. And, and like you're saying, the Bible doesn't try to split those up. We get into theological problems when we do split them. Okay, God's sovereign over this, so I don't have a choice. I, 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 my choice doesn't matter. I'm not responsible. Okay, I'm responsible, so God's not sovereign. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't pan out like that. So clearly this is all under God's sovereignty. And now we move into just a really hard few verses. So this is our, let me just read verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, now th this is tricky because it's a long sentence in Greek as well as uh, in English, I think, here. And the opening phrase, for it is impossible. What's impossible? And he doesn't tell you for three verses. So, so what's impossible? It is impossible to restore the person he's describing again to repentance. It's impossible to restore this person he's describing again to repentance. Um, and I think by impossible, he doesn't mean difficult or really challenging. I think he means impossible. He uses this word impossible a lot. It's impossible for God to lie. Uh, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And it's impossible to restore this person to repentance. It's not possible. It never has happened and never will happen. Who, whoever this is describing, verses 4 through 6, whatever group of people this is describing, those people have crossed a line that they will never come back over that line. That these people are sealed and they will never be saved. Uh, they will never repent. Uh, it, it, is, it is sealed. And that's what makes this whole passage the sobering, terrifying aspect of this text. And it should strike fear into us in, in an appropriate way. Um, so, Greg, do you want to walk us through a little bit of this? Yeah. Um, and again, you know, last week we ended kind of hard with, um, you know, the, the challenge to, to mature as opposed to staying, you know, in infancy. Um, and again, sometimes we, we just have certain texts, the flavor of the text, the emphasis of the text is going to be harder. It's going to be very serious and sobering like this. Um, and so, and that's okay. We don't, you know, we, we don't need to shy away from dealing with texts just because they make us uncomfortable. Um, some of the, the, the best growth we'll have is wrestling with texts like this. Um, so, but getting into it, you know, it's impossible in the case of those who have once, now the language here seems at first glance to maybe indicate that this is a genuine believer. Okay. Think about it. Who've been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, um, and then have fallen away. Um, one of the things we have to do when we come to a text like this is we have to remember this isn't the first time an issue like this has ever been discussed in the Bible. It's just, it's not. Um, there are several places uh, where the Bible gives an emphasis on, we've talked about persevering faith, and those who at one point seem to be genuine believers but through various circumstances, trials, temptations, prove that they actually weren't. Um, so I want to look at a couple of those places. One, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we, we read this and, and we focus on rightly Jesus saying, I never knew you, depart from me. 
But look at Matthew 7, verse 21. Okay, this happened before Hebrews 6 happened. And so the author of Hebrews knew this passage when he wrote his letter. So he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And verse 22, this is, he's speaking to unbelievers here. He says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so just let that settle on you right now, um, because that is a staggering thing that Jesus is saying. These people that he said, I never knew you, meaning you're not saved, you're not a believer, you're not, salvation does not belong to you. It says they prophesied, they, they preached, they spoke the word of God in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in his name, and they did other mighty works in the name of Jesus. Okay, these are non-believers, Okay. Um, and so Jesus is here saying very clearly, it is possible for people to give many evidences that they actually belong to Christ when in reality they don't. And the difference, as we're about to see, it's not, is, is again, it, it's not how you go for a short season. It's how you go over the totality of your life. How do you end? It's not just how you start, how do you end? So look at um, Luke chapter 8. It's Matthew has Matthew 13, the parables. Um, but Luke chapter 8, and either of you please stop me along the way as we're talking about this. Again, these are things that are already established. They know that Jesus taught this. And so we have to see the, the words of Christ having an influence on the later New Testament writings. So uh, Matthew cha or Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4, we know this parable well. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so here's his interpretation of these. Look at verse 11. He says, Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Verse 13, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word and listen to their reception, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. And so Jesus is not saying, okay, 25% of the people who hear the word are going to have it snatched away. And it's not going for percentages. He's simply saying these are the four types of responses, basic responses people are going to have to the gospel. Um, some, like they're going to hear it and there's going to be nothing. They're, 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 they're going to just remain um, apathetic, antagonistic. They're not going to believe. 
Um, another type of response is people who are going to look initially like they, they, they get it, they love Jesus, they're excited. Uh, it says they receive it with joy. Again, every indication, they've understood what the gospel says, and, and they are on fire for Jesus, to use a common phrase. But it doesn't last. This type of person will start off strong, but in reality, there's no real root in them. No real, we could say a root of faith, a true faith in them. And so what happens? It's interesting, Luke says, a time of testing causes them to fall away. And the other one is those, uh, the, the word sown among thorns. You know, thorns choke out a plant so that it can't bear the fruit that it's supposed to. And these, these are the thorns, if you will, that, that keep this particular type of person from bearing fruit. The cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And so they don't, their fruit doesn't mature. They don't bear what they want to. And Jesus says there's only one type of soil that actually demonstrates true salvation. And that's the good soil that, as he says, bears fruit with patience. So again, just we see Matthew 7, we see here Luke 8. Jesus has already taught his people at this point that there are going to be folks, the, at least two types of people who look initially like they are genuine Christians and they give evidence of that. And you would say, listening to them speak, watching the way they live, they have their devotions, they go to church, they go on mission trips, they try to turn away from sin and quit doing bad habits. But at some point, either a time of testing or the, the world and its cares and its riches and its pleasures starts to take over and it proves that no matter what they had been doing and saying up to that point, because they turn away, they were never really saved to begin with. Yeah, and, and just continuing with Luke 8, just after the parable, so he's warning us how we hear the word. Are we going to receive it and bear fruit, or are we going to let the word be choked out? How are we going to hear the word? Take care how you hear. Look at verse 18 of Luke 8. So right after the parable, take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, Look at this. Even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now, do you see that? Does the person have salvation? No. Do they think they have it? Yeah. And it's taken away. That does not mean they lose their salvation. What they thought they had, they lose. But they never actually had what they thought they had. That, that's the point there. So the, the two soils, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, receive the word with joy. There's this passion. There's this zeal like you're describing. And then it burns out with persecution or the pleasures of this life choke it out and destroy it, and even what they thought they had initially is proven that they never had it. It's not that they lose it, it's that they thought they had it and they bear witness that they did not. And go going with yours, with your comment also from, well, Jesus' comment from Matthew 7, Jesus doesn't say, uh, you know, these people were doing mighty works. He doesn't say, I used to know you, but you've apostatized. What does he say? I never, never knew you. I mean, to me, that seals the whole discussion. He doesn't say, you used to be believers when you were doing those mighty deeds in my name. When you prophesied in my name, you were a believer. When you cast out demons in my name, you were a believer. But now I no longer know you. He says, I never knew you the whole time. Which means at the end of life, if someone leaves the faith, they never had the faith in, in, the, first, in the first place. And can I go to another text real quick? Mm -hmm. You can or cannot turn there, but if you want to flip to Matthew 10, I find this one absolutely fascinating to think about. As you're turning there to Matthew 10, 
I'll just make a brief comment about Judas Iscariot. As you're turning to Matthew 10, in John 6, Jesus said about Judas Iscariot that he knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Now, do you hear that about Judas? He knew from the beginning, from the beginning, who those were who did not believe. Judas didn't believe from the beginning, and he knew he would betray him, and then later he calls him the devil. So Judas was never a believer. But did he look like a believer True. outwardly? Yes, and so, so here's a distinction that I want to emphasize. And I'm going to use a fancy word that just sounds ridiculous, but I've heard a couple of people I respect use it a lot. And so I thought, you know, maybe this is the right word. Are you ready for a ridiculous? I can't even say it. You ready? I'm going to try. Phenomenological. Is that, I think I got, got it. it I think I got it. Wow, that was you the first it, try. I I've can't been working say that. On that. Okay, <laughs> so, so th this is a, a word I've heard. A couple of different people I really respect on this topic have said, Sometimes the, the Bible uses, or you, you have phenomenological language. I had to look this up to read about it. But this just means what you see from your perspective versus what is actually true. Phenomenological language means, I, from, from my perspective, I see, say, like we have however many, 70-so-on members of our church, and we've all heard a credible profession of faith, and they've all been baptized. They're all members of our church. They're all, you know, participating. From my vantage point, all the members of our church are Christians. From my vantage point, right? I have, I have no real legitimate reason to, to doubt that, right? I, I think that we're all believers. And so I can speak to our members and say, we know the Lord. We've been forgiven, right? I can, I'm, I'm basing this on phenomenological language. From my vantage point, from, I'm not omniscient. I can't read the heart. Based on the externals that I see, I can call the members of our church brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that guarantee that every member of our church is truly inwardly a brother or sister in Christ? No. no. It does not. And so Judas, phenomenologically, by appearances only, looked like a legitimate disciple. Because remember at the Last Supper, Jesus goes, one of you will betray me. And Peter, they're not all like, yeah, yeah, we know, it's Judas. Come on, like, are you kidding me? Of course it's Judas, Judas, come on, man. There's none of that. When, when, when Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, Peter, is it I? John, is it I? James, is it I? Judas is like, can I leave? Like, I don't know, he actually does leave. But, but they, don't, they don't know. They've been with them for, what, two and a half, three years? They've been with them every day, like on a, on a camping trip that goes for two and a half years. They've been with Judas constantly, okay, living with him, sleeping in the same space as him, eating every meal basically with him. And after two and a half years, not one disciple knows it's him. By outward appearances, Judas was in. But by Christ, from Christ's perspective, he knows beyond the phenomena. He knows beyond what you see. By, his, by the reality, Jesus said he was never in. He knew from the beginning who it was who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he calls Judas Satan, the, uh, the devil. So look at Matthew 10 just to kind of heighten the stakes here. Matthew 10, 1. I'm going to read the whole list of names. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them, all, that is all of them, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Judas by the Spirit, did miracles. I'm convinced that's what this is teaching. I, I, don't, I, I don't even think it's debatable. I, Judas cast out demons, 
healed the sick, and he may have even raised dead people by the power of the Spirit given by Jesus, and yet he never truly had the indwelling Spirit. I wonder if Saul was in a similar... You remember Saul, the Spirit came on Saul for, to empower him, and then the Spirit left Saul, and a tormenting Spirit took the place, and the Spirit went to David, and Saul didn't like that? So the Spirit can, can work through someone like Judas to do miraculous deeds without actually regenerating the heart. So miracles don't prove that you're a Christian. Okay? If you could do such a thing, that would not prove that you're automatically a believer. Judas did miraculous works commissioned by Jesus in the power of the Spirit. He cast out demons. And, and he will stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many mighty wonders, not falsely, genuinely, in your name, by your Spirit. And he will say, from the beginning, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so that, that's the weight of this. So with some of those texts in mind... Can we return to the Hebrews 6 text? Sure. Let's return to Hebrews 6 with, with Judas in mind. And tell me if Judas does not start to help us make sense out of this paragraph. Let me read it again. Hebrews 6, verse 4. Just think of Judas here. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Okay, stop. Did Judas know the truth that Jesus was the Messiah? Did he know that in his head? So he was yes. enlightened, yeah. right? who have tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. Did Judas share in this sense of the Holy Spirit? Did the Spirit work through him to do miracles, and was he around the works of the Spirit? Did he eat some of the bread that was multiplied by Jesus' miracle? He ate some of the miracle bread, right? And he didn't know the Lord. Just like in the wilderness, they ate the manna, the miracle bread, and didn't know the Lord, right? So you, you can be close is what, is what it's saying. And then you keep going, verse 5. Tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers, that's the word for miracles, mighty works, the powers of the age to come. Did Judas taste the powers of the age to come? Did he, did he actually taste the miraculous, the, 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 the mighty works? Yes, he did. He was right there doing them. Verse 6, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt, did Judas fall away? And essentially, literally, he helped crucify Jesus, literally, right? And Judas does not actually genuinely repent. He had remorse, right? Remember 2 Corinthians 7? There's a worldly sorrow that produces death. Yeah. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and life without regret. And just, I've used this illustration, but Peter and Judas, on that fateful night, Thursday night and Good Friday morning, they both failed in similar ways, right? So Judas betrays Jesus for silver. Peter betrays Jesus so he didn't get in trouble with the servant girl. Neither one is particularly virtuous at this moment, okay? And both of them uh, have horrible feelings about what they did. Judas throws the money back into the temple and says, I've betrayed innocent blood, and he goes off and hangs himself. Peter says, basically, I've betrayed innocent blood. He doesn't say that, but he's basically, I've betrayed my Lord, and he goes out and weeps bitterly, and at the resurrection, Jesus says, go tell my disciples and Peter that I'm risen, I'm, I'll see you in Galilee. So Peter and John, Judas both betrayed Jesus horrifically on the same night, horrifically. And one of them has sorrow that leads literally to death, suicide. One of them has sorrow that leads to repentance and life without regret. Peter gets up 
50 days later on Pentecost is like, let's go. Let me tell you the good news about Jesus. And by the way, you guys killed him. And if you kill me right now, that's okay. Like, it's just pure boldness because he's filled with the spirit and he has no regret. I mean, he, he, he feels bad about what he did, but now he's, he's not living in the past. He's moving on. Let, let us press on to what's ahead. And, and Peter shows the life of a born again person. He shows the, the fruit of the spirit. Judas shows the fruit of, of, of rottenness, of not being genuinely uh, a believer. So, I think an interesting word provoked me. I don't know what it is in the Greek. I didn't, I should have looked it up, but uh, both four and five had tasted. And, and I, I think that, that life is a tasting contest. I mean, I don't mean necessarily literally food, but we, we taste and see that something is good and we pursue it and we go after it and we want it. And so there are, there are people that, that, um, that are attracted to Christianity because of all these they've been enlightened they've they've seen the they believe the gospel they they perhaps have been convicted of their own sin um, they uh, they have seen the good you can't read this even if you're not non-believer and not see the value or the goodness in the word of god uh, so all of this is tasting so they come in and they sample and they taste and then when times get tough or they choose, they would fall away. Rebellion, the word means. So um, it's this is kind of a scary passage, and and uh, should uh, call all of us to to look at our own hearts sometimes. Yeah, and, and taking your your analogy, your illustration there of tasting um, from the text as well. Um, it's like they, they have had a real taste of who Jesus is, what he's done, all that Mark was talking about. And it's like they're, they're tasting the world as well, and they get to a point in their hearts where they settle it, and they say, you know what? The world or this other religion, it's just better than Jesus. I mean, ultimately, if you want to put it that way, um, they, they, and in that, they are crucifying once again. And they're, they're basically saying... If you prefer something over Jesus, it's as if you're saying he deserved to be crucified. He deserved what he got because obviously um, I'm not trusting him um, and uh, he's not worth my trust. Uh, and so he deserved what he got. That, that's the position of this heart. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing to think about. Um, but let me offer some comfort even in the midst of, of this. If you have even the smallest sliver of or somebody you know who might be struggling if you if you or they have the smallest sliver of oh my goodness i don't want to be like this however small it is you know that that is the grace of god at work this yes. is describing a person whose conscience towards christ has been seared they they can't come back they won't come back um and you you can lay the case out as as clearly and i think was it um charles templeton was it the friend of billy graham who started out as a very big evangelist. He, he was actually more successful at first, I think, than, than Billy Graham was, if you just want to look at numbers. But he, he started drinking deeply of like higher criticism and um, liberal theology. And man, he just outright abandoned everything. And I remember reading an interview, um, an interview with him towards the end of his life, and he was still hardening this. And he was like, you know what? 
I miss Jesus, but he wouldn't come back to Jesus. He had made such a clean break that, yeah, Jesus, there was something special about him, but, but it's not good enough to draw me back. He could um, not repent. No, he couldn't. And, th- th- and it is one of the clearest examples of this. Um, and, and it's like y- you have every reason to believe in him and trust what the Bible says. But this guy wouldn't. Yeah, and so the, the, the author knows that this is extremely strong language, what he's using. But let me just reread 7 and 8 so you can hear the parable of the soils in his mind. I mean, just tell me if you can't hear the parable of the soils in verses 7 and 8. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, the good soil. Verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. So do you see there, the, Jesus' parable is just right there in the front of his thinking, I, I believe. But now he knows this is so discouraging, or, or could be discouraging, or just terrifying to some people. Let, let me just say this first, before we get to the, this will all be encouraging, I think, here from here on. But um, if, if a person is repentant, they are not the group described here. So if you're saying, I hate my sin, I love the Lord, I want the Lord to help me get rid of my sin, I want to pursue the Lord, you are not being described in this text. Because the people in this text, they will never repent. See, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. That's not going to happen. They're not going to repent. So uh, the sign that this is not us is that we are repentant people, that that we over and over repent of sin in our lives. And now he he knows this could be discouraging, so verse 9 Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, do you see, that means the paragraph before did not belong to salvation, right? That was not describing salvation. This, this is over here. This is salvation. That's not. The Judas situation is not salvation, but this is. I, I think you guys are believers for the most part, he's telling his listeners. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look at 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness. I think that hints at this idea. I think he's writing to a church made up of all, you know, these are professing believers. And he's saying, I think for most of you, this warning is not going to be true of you. I think for most of you. But when he says, we desire each one of you, he means there really were people in that church in danger of committing this sin. Why else would he have brought it up? And why would he say, make sure each one of you, none of you does this. Make sure. So probably there were some in the church beginning to drift back to Judaism and at the beginnings of apostasy and gross spiritual immaturity. And he says, you guys better strengthen things up and move toward Jesus, away from, the, from, from Judaism, towards Jesus, or else you may slip, 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 fall back and cross a line of no return where you'll never want Jesus back. You'll never want repentance back. You will never turn again, and you, you'll, be, you'll be out in that case. But he says, for most of you, I feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I think this is very pastoral of him, too, yes. in nine. Uh, you know, he says, though we, he calls them beloved, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, so that's the group you're talking about that, that are the believers, beloved, I think it's the only time that's used, we feel sure of better things. 
things that belong to salvation. So, and then it, then it gets just something better. <laughs> he talked about better things. So verse 13, yeah, let's, let's, let's we move on for time's sake. Time, we'll yeah. the uh, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, oh. since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he, he ends um, where, he, where he started in chapter 5, verse 10. Because again, like Mark was saying earlier, he wanted to talk about Melchizedek, but he had some things he had to address first. And so now he's about to finish kind of this, this interlude, um, and, and, and he's about to get back to Melchizedek. But before we get there, um, he, he's, he's drawing our attention in verses 13 through 20 um, to the, the certainty of the promises of God as a reason why we never cease clinging in faith to Christ. Um, and so look at what he says. He made a promise to Abraham. We think, okay, Genesis 12, God said, I'm going to bless you, promise land, seed, blessing, curse on those who curse him. So he, he had made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And this is what he said. Uh, this is actually going to Genesis 22. Uh, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So the promise was Genesis 12. The oath, this swearing, was Genesis 22. Do we want to turn there? Or do we have time? Yeah, I, I can read it real quick. Yeah, so from it. Genesis 22, right after the near sacrifice of Isaac and the angel of the Lord stops him, 22, 15... <laughs> And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring, etc. So God actually says, I swear by myself I will keep this promise. And so the author of Hebrews, I'm going to go right back to Greg, the author of Hebrews is meditating on why would God have to swear? Everything God says is true. God can't lie. It's impossible for God to say something that's not true. So why would God have to say, okay, I'm not just promising it. I'm going to make a formal oath by my own self. I swear I will do this. Yeah, and so, I mean, like, like you were saying, God as God cannot lie. He is utterly trustworthy. When he says he will do a thing, he will do it. We we, we have to take him at his word. And so God making a promise is by itself enough. But he God... Yes, he doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to swear an oath by oath. No, he doesn't. He chose to do that for our sake. For us. Yeah, yes. for, for us, because we're weak. We're ten, we tend to doubt. We tend to, to be unsure. So God's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do you one better. I'm not just going to make the promise. I'm going to swear an oath, and I'm going to swear it by the greatest individual in the entire universe, myself. And so that actually gets to verse 18 because verse 17, God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise what, you know, this unchangeable character, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, what are the two unchangeable things? Uh, we're going to simplify for you, hopefully, maybe, hopefully we're right. Um, something that, for me at least, I have wrestled with, always tried to understand this. Um, and I think, and a lot of commentators agree with this, the two unchangeable things, one is the promise, the second thing is the oath. God made a promise. Um, it's unchangeable. Promises don't change. And even more so, his oath by which he swore is, is unchanging. Why, and that's why he says, in which it is impossible for God to lie. And so the emphasis here is on us keeping our focus on God and his promises. If we want to persevere in faith, that's where our faith has to stay focused. God and his promises, and we could say his oath as well. Why? Because God is utterly trustworthy. Got something? Yeah, so uh, th this is just really encouraging. On one side, there's a genuine threat, and he's not afraid to explain it. On the other side is a promise, a glorious promise, and God is so reliable, he doesn't just promise it, he swears on top of promising it that he will keep this promise. So the author is doing everything he can to persuade us, don't go this way, go this way, right? D don't go over there is, is, is destruction. It's near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Don't go that way. Instead, go toward the promise of God and put your faith in it steadfastly. Don't relent. Don't let go. Don't burn out. Don't give in. Hold on to the promise. Why? Because God didn't just promise it. He swore an oath on top of the promise so that in our weakness and our doubts, we have every reason to cling with both of our hands by God's grace to this promise and never drift away. And that leads us right into this anchor metaphor, which I love because I don't know if you've noticed this when you're out doing your boating. I know the Krauses have got some boating at the lake house. I've seen the pictures. I know what happens. I, I don't know if you know this about boating. You probably don't have an anchor on your boat, but <laughs> maybe you do. Anchors typically go down. It's a rare, you know, it's kind of anchors. You put them in the water, and weirdly enough, they go down. This anchor goes up. I love that. And let's just look at it. I love this. Verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as our forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our anchor goes up with Jesus into heaven where our security is, and he's holding on to us ultimately. So if we are in Christ, there is no fear. This, this threat will never happen to you. If you are in Christ, the Lord has you and the anchor goes up into heaven, held on to Christ in the inner place so that there is no way we're going to drift away. Those who are truly his, those who belong to salvation will anticipate better things, not, not the things of destruction, but the things of, of salvation. Well, and this also, in light of that, it puts, it, again, it puts the proper emphasis um, on the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. We must cling to Christ but at the end of the day, our hope does not rest in our clinging to Christ. Yeah. It rests in his clinging to his us. His clinging to us, that's Yeah, right. there's a, a song, I think we've sang it here. You know, it's, it says, it's more than I can do to keep my hold on you. So all my hope in peace is that you cling to me. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what's happening here. Um, the, the ultimate strength of our hope is not how strongly we're holding on to Jesus, but the hope that he's not going to let go of us. Um, and, and again, that's why we say keep your focus and your faith on God and his promises. Because if that's where your hope stays, you will be unmoved. 
Have you noticed how many times hope appears in, in Hebrews? It's amazing. Like in, in here in 19, it says, a hope that actually enters the inner place behind the curtain. Reminds me of Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes and what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Mm -hmm. Very encouraging. Okay, so we, we are almost done here. Um, again, the, the, the author of Hebrews gives us warnings that are intense because he loves us. Um, we're too late in the hour for a rant, so I'll just make this brief. But if someone is, this could be a pastor, but it could be a parent teaching their child. It could be you talking to your friend over coffee. When we try to defang the wrath of God and get rid of the wrath of God because it sounds more pleasing and loving and more attractive, uh, we are horribly uh, not loving the person that we're talking to if we try to hide this. The author of Hebrews talks about these threats because they're true. And you need to know what is true so that it doesn't happen to us. That he loves us enough to tell us the truth so that we don't go there. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I just had a COVID-19 illustration. I know you haven't heard of that yet, but uh, it's, a, it's a thing going around. But uh, with COVID-19, think about it. People knew there was, a, there was a threat, and it's been true. Over 125,000 people have died in the United States, so there was a real threat coming. And so people wanted to know the truth about the threat, and they wanted to try to deal with it. Well, we do, when it comes to physical life and death, it's like no holds barred. Everybody talks about it all the time, every news station. When it comes to eternal life and death, nobody talks about it on the news. Far more threatening, far more real, far, far more a reality. It's just right around the corner. And, and we, we think it's unloving to bring it up because you're one of those Bible-thumping fundamentalists. It's like, no, I, I'm trying to be like biblical. I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to be like the author of Hebrews. And so we must tell the truth. If we care enough to tell about physical suffering, how much more about eternal suffering and the hope that's, that's ours in Jesus? Amen. Greg, would you close us in prayer? Yeah. Heavenly Father, our God, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the hard texts. Um, Lord, I, I pray that only what has been faithful to your word will stick in our hearts and minds. Um, and God, may any who are struggling, either here in person or maybe listening uh, through the video and watching, God, any who are struggling, Lord, lead their hearts, even right now, Lord, off of themselves and onto Jesus onto you, God, and your promises, because that is where they will find strength to continue on. Um, Lord, if there are any who have been straying, Lord, uh, wake them up through this. Yes. Lord, may the, the weightiness of this warning and the threat in it land on their soul with the weight uh, that it needs to, Lord, shaking them out of their slumber out of their sluggishness, Lord. May they, they move from being drunk with the world to being sober in terms of heaven and hell um, and, and turn away from their sin, God, before it is too late. Um, and Lord, uh, help us all, Lord, to see that our one hope in all of this is not ourselves. God, as much as we must press on to maturity and seek you and turn away from sin and, and grow and, and, and do all that you've commanded, God, our hope is not in us. It never has been. It never will be. It is in Jesus alone. Um, and so, God, help us in light of all that we've considered, Lord, to set our hope on Christ. Lord, as, as, as a steadfast anchor 
of the soul. Um, he, he is in the very presence of God, on the throne of God. Uh, there is no greater security than being anchored to Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to focus our faith and our hope on Him. And, Lord, may that just transform our outlook every day. Uh, Lord, help us to, to just be, as we read the Bible and as we pray, to have the glory of Jesus unveiled more and more to our souls. God, that we might more and more set our sights on Him alone. Lord, help us individually, help us as a church to heed the warnings of your word, but also to be thrilled by the promises of God. Help us as a church to persevere. Lord, we don't know what uh, is going to happen in the world that we live in. Uh, is increasingly hostile to the gospel and to Christianity as it is. Lord, may we be a people here at North Avenue that persevere in faith because we know that your promises are true and we know that the reward of your presence and eternal life and eternal joy with you is as sure as anything. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm not supposed to add stuff to the end, but i got to add one quick thing. Um, I feel like something could be misunderstood, so I want to just add this. Um, when it says it's impossible to restore this person to repentance if they've fallen away, we don't necessarily know where the line is in the falling away where someone can't come back. So just real quick, I know a guy personally who was an atheist. Fred knows him too. He professed faith in Christ. I believe he was baptized and went around for several months sharing his testimony. And then after a, half a year or a year, he went back and became an atheist again, renounced the Christian faith, went back to atheism, and lived as an atheist for two or three more years. And then he, I think he was genuinely converted after those three more years of atheism, and now he's almost certainly a believer from every indication I can tell. So he did not cross this line. See, so I, I don't know exactly where, when someone, when someone begins to claim Christ and then walk away, we don't know exactly where the, the invisible line is of it's impossible to restore them. So let's not assume the worst. Let's keep praying for people, even if they have started to back away from the faith, because maybe they haven't reached the point of no return, right? Well, let's continue to have hope for them, pray for them. And I know 1 John 5 says, you know, there's a sin that leads to death. I do not say to pray for that person. But I don't always know when someone has committed this sin. And so if we're not sure that they've finally crossed that line, let, let's still pray for their salvation and hope for the best and share the gospel because perhaps the Lord will still graciously work in their life. We, we, we don't always know exactly where this point comes. All right. I think that's it. Thank you, guys.